0: Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by the farm chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two, whilst occasionally sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit – So let's start with Andrew Dewing with this week's Market Report.
1: Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Now let's start really positively, shall we? Cold weather. Welcome cold weather slugs and aphids don't like it so that's going to sort some of them out which is brilliant better than any of the slug pellets that don't work nowadays grain temperatures in store they'll be going down everybody's happy with that that's really good As poor storekeepers you've got to worry about us frosts have given the odd opportunity for farmers to plant wheat yay we've got a job next year everybody beautiful crisp play blue skies small smattering of snow and hail how lovely is that So let's go on to markets now I've been all positive to start with shall I shall we so markets continue recent trend they are doing nothing very much going sideways stroke down stroke up early part of the week down yesterday rally today everyone's gone to the bourse I should be at the bourse but unfortunately my wife broke her leg so I'm I'm nursey and um, which is which is very good for me I think. Anyway, so I'm missing out on drinking lots of beer and stuff like that and puffing my chest out and fibbing about how well we're doing. But the reality is I think I'd be saying, no, we're having a rubbish year. It's kind of like, "Mm, can't read the market. I feel so bearish to old crop wheat, I can't tell you. And I shouldn't do because it's quite low in value. But I just do. I can't see where the UK wheat goes other than into the big hole that's being created next year by the fact there isn't a crop. That's asking a lot of like the period between now and next May, June when that gets sorted out and... Yeah, I think one or two farmers have not liked the price for such a long period they haven't sold it. And I think that's going to keep the pressure on UK wheat. Anyway, we shall see. And certainly there's no export at the moment. We're a million miles from export, which can't be good. Yeah, and the market's rallied a bit this week because there's a bit of extra exports from the States. But again, there's nothing really newsworthy to really make you hang your hat on something. So let's go straight to some prices, shall we, as that's what we're here for. Wheat, January 180X farm. May 187x farm, July 192x farm. So there's £12 for carrying it between Jan and July. There's not much interest or opportunity to move stuff pre-Christmas. If you had to, we can give you a price, but I'd rather not be that offensive. Barley um, is a bog-off. Buy one, get one free. So, or you can do it that way round, or you can say £300 for two tonnes. That's all there is to say about that, isn't there? You know, what rubbish price and why is it so cheap against everything else why rush into selling it when it's going to be grim anyway so i think that's the tactic is close your eyes and think of england molting barley is quiet again there's the odd short appearing as rejections occur moisture problems germination problems screening problems you name it problems Uh, we're not doing much milling wheat to any millers so i can't say that they're rejecting everything we aren't as you know the biggest deliverers of milling wheat so i'm sure they're the same just to be horrid to them again Uh, Oilseed rape, 352 for December, old crop uh, harvest is 355, a gradual grinding little climb, not really worthy of a mention, but you know, the state of the crop, the slug issues, the flea beetle issues, the whole misery of this production year, I think it's don't sell it yet is my attitude. So that's kind of where prices are and it's not very lively and not very exciting. What else is going on? Digital grain passport is there's still a determined little team of the trades trying to get this through, spending farmers' money to do it. Hopefully, the AHDB are going to be bright enough to see that the funds they're trying to get raised are going to be spent on this ridiculous idea, which is costing more already than the old system. So, if you start in year one with the pretend IT setup costs costing you more than the paper system costs, What on earth is it going to cost? you keep storing the data time and time again? And anyone who's ever had any involvement with any IT project knows it is always spiralling out of control. I can't be bothered to list the number of them again, but it is a white elephant. And please, NFU England, wake up. That'll get me in trouble. That's enough ranting. So this week, the uh, interview is Ben interviewing David Barnard, who is... He gives us a real taste of what it's like on a small UK farm, diversifying, exploring all avenues to keep the thing profitable. It's really what's happening on farm. The state of UK bureaucracy, which is hideous, after you know, post-Brexit, will all the paper will be gone. No, there's more. The cost of it, the time of it, the duplication. Everybody wants the same facts. You'd think that you'd be able to link the two things together. No, everybody wants their own records, you know. So whilst competition reward has none of those costs, that, that's the point. It's really, really quite hideous. And he's positive all the way through it. And he talks about rewilding. He talks about food safety, lack of a plan. Yeah, it's an, it's an excellent example of modern farming diversification, hindrance from government whilst remaining positive. So I, I, I you know, credit to him. Good interview. David went to uni with Ben, which Ben Ben mentioned several times, but it's like, yeah, I'm impressed. I've not not met David myself, but uh, good interview and I love his positivity. So enjoy that. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours.
0: The King's Head Coldishall welcomes you to come and try our new menu and enjoy the fantastic character of this 17th century inn, which has recently been lovingly updated. The log fire will be on whilst you enjoy our menu, which has all the hearty, warm classics you would expect from your local country pub, as well as an exceptional range of a la carte dishes, all prepared by head chef Lawrence Gurney. With excellent wine menu to match, we know you won't be disappointed. Book to avoid disappointment, and we look forward to welcoming you at the King's Head Cultershall soon.
2: Okay, so today I am doing a podcast with someone who I've known for...
3: 26 years?
2: Yes, he's nodding. Yeah,
3: 26, 27 maybe. Maybe
2: even 27 years. It's a young man called David Barnard, who I first met at the University of Reading when we were both studying agricultural economics. And we were both incredibly fresh-faced and keen, although I think you could say that David was keener than I was. (laughs) So, to give a bit of background about this podcast, David has a wonderful livestock farm business and runs a company called DJ Barnard. That's correct. And you specialise in, I would say,
3: exceptional quality meat. We try to. Everything we produce on the farm, we sell through our farm shop, which has been going just 27 years now, which is quite an achievement. I think we've gone that far. And we specialise in... Beef and lamb, so which is all grazed on the farm here in Rock Saints, and everything else we use really good local suppliers to complement our stuff. And everything we other things we sell has to be similar quality, similar welfare to what we produce. So we try to be at the high end if we can. I mean, what I love is that
2: you know you are a Norfolk boy, born and bred. And when we were at university together, I mean it, I'm not going to be speaking out of turn to say I was a little bit wayward, but but <laughs> never,
3: never. But
2: you were. I mean, you were a very, very good student, and you know the three years that we were there. You know, everyone we all worked reasonably hard. But not only did you get a first, you, at the same time you were also starting this business DJ Barnett from scratch David
3: yeah although with the farms been I'm the fifth generation of the family to farm here and, and live here at Rocklands the farms changed so much over time my grandparents used to be an arable farm here with just a few livestock and livestock's always been really my major interest when I was growing up we've always had sheep when I was really young and when I managed to sort of actually have some more time and more space to develop myself we had developed the cattle side of it, which we've started from just a few breeding cows. We've now got you know generations of, of cattle, which we've got our own genetics pool from, and the sheep flock. We've it a closed flock, so everything we don't buy any replacements in. We just breed everything through, so our bloodlines stretch back really quite a long way. So it's really exciting to to keep doing that. You know, it's uh, the academic side's gone now. You know, I wouldn't be able to do anything like that. I don't think. I think you. You've um, bigged me up a bit too much, anyway. I don't think I was that kid. <laughs> they were much better.
2: I remember copying you on a few exams, and they were the only exams I really did well in. Anyway. <laughs> it was phenomenal, you know. You, you know, that three years at Reading, I remember. You know that you were you were you were very focused on your studies. Mm. You, I mean, we all enjoyed it. It was great yeah. fun, but. Behind the scenes, you were working very hard on, on this business. Yeah,
3: it was a little bit by accident. You know, I, I hadn't necessarily got plans to come back straight away. I, I'd applied for jobs at the end. I'd been to interviews at major supermarket retailers to be buyers, etc. And, and I sort of quite fancied that at the time. But things changed back home and and um, my uncle, who was farming here, sadly died. So the opportunity to take over the farm was there and we talked about it and although the size of the farm and and selling commercial livestock at the time it wasn't going to be viable for me to earn my living from that so we looked at what else we could do and that at that stage it was selling direct to the public not many people did it then it was a real real sort of niche so we tried to create a bespoke line so we we were high end at that time and just basically really just knocking on people's doors and trying to sell things to the villagers and stuff. And that that was where where it all started. And since then, we've sort of gone full circle, really. We expanded, took on other shops. At one stage, we had five or six butchers working for us. yeah. And gradually, we were supplying schools, universities and big establishments. But we've really gone full circle now. And we've honed back into that real caring personal service for the public we really do just go on home deliveries and and build relationship with people to supply exactly what we want nowadays
2: as i say it is it's amazing and you know we're sitting in your lovely house but i remember 20 plus years ago you brought me here on a, a weekend where we were just getting away from university and there was this place was falling down, there was a tree growing in it.
3: Yeah, it was my grandparents' house and they, when they passed away there was no inside loo here, This was, that was a, <laughs> a mod con and, and there was a big gaping hole in the wall and, and it took a lot to decide whether we were able to do it up and it was salvageable and, and we've really centred upon that now so there's still always a lot of work to do. <laughs> I mean, it's phenomenal,
2: you know, you, here you are you know, you got your first from Reading. As you say, you were going to interviews, you kind of looking at job opportunities, but you you came back to Norfolk, mm. you had your plan, and you yeah. stuck to
3: it. I appreciate people say, oh, you wasted your degree, you haven't done anything with it. Uh, but even now, I find that the experience I had at Reading and the things which we learnt there, do actually, you use all the time, particularly with business plans, working with the bank and all that. I wouldn't have been able to do things which I'd done up until now, I hope for the good things rather than the bad things, um, without that experience at Reading's. Even if you go into your own business and do your things, it does really pay to have that experience and, and do some degree related to what you want to do.
2: Yeah, and The drinking helped, as well. Yeah, it did, didn't it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Gives you a clear head. That's right,
2: really, really helps you out. And so, you know, as you say, it's, it's twenty almost 27 years. I mean, when you... So, when you first left university, I mean, I went off and did my thing. I joined the the grain trade, and you were doing your thing. The farm was very different, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. what, so what was it? You were arable and livestock. Arable
3: and livestock. We, we grew sugar beet on contract to British Sugar. And we were mostly spring barley, molten barley. Which um, you never sold to me. Which we never sold to you. I don't think we really sold much of to anyone. It was like, <laughs> uh, yeah, and we rented, all, all the, the livestock was out on rented farms. So we ended up. It wasn't viable for us to obviously keep a small arable farm then. So, we so had when to, you say
2: small day, I mean, how many we're acres? We're at 100
3: acres. 100 100, acres. It's yeah. not, you know, that's a back garden today. And, that's not, mm. so, and we were renting mm. three or 400 acres of grass, and it, it just didn't seem to make any sense that we couldn't make any money being an arable farm. So we'd try and actually eventually over time bring stuff back here. So we converted ourselves into a, um, a grassland farm. So the arable went 2000 and 17, I think, was the last time we grew anything commercial arable. Side. So I'd say, okay. Yeah, and it's never been, you know, it's always been an arable farm here. In my grandparents' and uncles' day in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they would made a healthy income out of a 100 acres of arable farm. They, they, you know, that was a good living, but you know, you couldn't even pay your beer bill now, <laughs> not, not, selling, not selling grain, I don't think.
2: <laughs> but you are surrounded by Large arable farming enterprises, aren't you? Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of three, four hundred acre arable farms just around all our neighbours. So that's this is a real prime arable belt. There's not many livestock as such in in this area, other than ours. Yeah. And I love
2: that. And there's just you here. And as we, you know, we're sitting in your dining room, looking out into the cattle sheds, and it, I mean, it's fantastic.
3: Yeah, new you carve the small, we're carving all year round for the shop, so there's always something always something being bought on the farm.
2: <laughs> yeah. We were discussing earlier about, you know, the, you obviously you love your animals, you love the livestock, and you love the industry you're in, the, the butchery, the dealing with the public, the rearing of the animals. You, I mean, I know from conversations... With you over the years, you're very, very conscious about the feed that goes into your animals. Yeah,
3: yeah. And we've gone through years and years of trying to get it right. I don't know whether we ever will get it right, but we've now got to a stage where we know our customers are conscious on food miles and the carbon footprints, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So we've tried to look at our feed and we eliminated things like soy as much as we can. It's, it's all, really? it's all yeah. uh, beans and peas in the mix. We've now got a company who do a mill and mix bags for us for the cattle feed. And everything else has grown on the farm. the silage we use, which is the sheeps basically have that all year round, and the clover mixes we know, grow as part of our arable lays, are absolutely wonderful for growing livestock on with the clover and the loosen in it, and all the herb rich meadows. You can really tell the difference with the end product.
2: so yeah, I mean this is this is amazing. This is sort of going back to I guess how you know, livestock farming was mm. i mean yes they're right as you say there are lots of enterprises out there doing it but you know you say you're, you've avoided the imported feeds the soyers
3: the imported maize i mean i'm sure you're using uk maize i think you struggle to get uk grain maize you'd tell me better than that yeah, there's a bit of that there's a bit about it, but not commercial i wouldn't think mm. viable yet but you never know do you there'll be a be really nice to have that because that is a good extra addition to feed if you can get it if there would be british grain maize but i haven't seen much around
2: well funnily enough i think that side of the industry is developing and farmers are looking to harvest grain maize but i think it's the quality of the meat that you produce Mm. you butcher it all in a shop that you own. Yes, yeah,
3: It's true, yeah. Yeah. We do it all ourselves as well nowadays. It's just a family enterprise now. It's all, all done all done through the same shop we opened twenty seven years ago. So.
2: <laughs> I mean, as you say, there was at one point where you had was it twenty staff?
3: No, not twenty. I think we we ended up with the livestock staff as well. It would be up to be at ten, ten or eleven. We had five butchers at some at one point. Yeah, and you um, had a
2: shop. And... We had
3: another shop, a high street shop, but it just, you know, it's just such a tight profit margin business. You have to be high, high end or high volume, and there's no real, the middle way seems to struggle nowadays. So it's, a, we had to make choices. COVID was possibly our biggest help, which seems a really odd thing to say. Oh, yeah, that does. Yeah. yeah. Because before that, we were still supplying schools, we were still supplying loads and loads of wholesale pubs and restaurants, and we were squeezed on margins down to pence and um, things like that. Because, you know, we would lose mm. contracts if we were, you know, people even going to half peas. I don't know you could have a half pea <laughs> these days, but, and we had to stand back and go. It's not good for us. We're not able to produce quality at that sort of price anymore. So we took the decision to say that we're going to close a wholesale, of very local or very great friends of ours who we still supply and just as I say, concentrate on home deliveries, private customers shop. We still do farmers markets. We were around before farmers markets started and we still do two or three a month. Not okay. as many as we used to, but you know, they're still there and they're still it's still good to meet the public and 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 you can develop new products, new ways of cutting meat and do real service to to have that bond with people and customers is a real good thing for us and i I think our business is so much healthier now we've looked at it scaled it back and just concentrated on doing what we do well
2: i will just say here that actually the real brains
3: behind this is your wonderful wife Rosie? Yeah, Rosie's the brains <laughs> and, and the head sausage maker and the head livestock keeper. It's just, uh, I'm just senior management now, my oh, old age. Oh, here we go!
2: <laughs> but you know, it, it's amazing, isn't it? There's you know, there's you and Rosie. Your mum and, mum and dad are, are still still involved. still
3: involved. Yeah, dad's still busy in the shop, and mum still does the farmers markets for us. She, she likes to go and do those. So it's nice that they're still involved with it and still very interested in helping us. I'll better do
2: a name check. Hello, Joan and John. Oh. Don't worry, I'm still around. <laughs> I know I've not been to see you recently. But... They always
3: ask after you. They're delighted <laughs> to know you are here.
2: But, you know, as you say, you've, the COVID changed your business, but you scaled back. You focused on quality. Yeah. And you've never looked
3: back. No, I, it's it's tough at the moment. I, it's mm. tough with the credit crunch with everyone. It's hard to find that people people are still spending on quality, but they're cutting back on sides of orders. You can even sell that they're trying to make their orders go further, uh, which yeah. you know I totally agree with. But you know we we need to keep everything fresh with keeping engagement with people. That's why we do a weekly newsletter about all the farm events for the. Our customers and that they're really interested in everything we do and where their products come from and if we can keep everyone sort of engaged and wanting to buy local produce then I think we'll still be all right you know this is Christmas will hopefully still be good for us.
2: I'm sure it will I mean it's so obvious that you know as I've I mean I've known you for so long but for those people that, that don't know you you know you are totally committed to animal welfare You know, you're not organic because what's the point? You don't need to be. Mm. Your your animals graze on the most wonderful pasture in Norfolk and they're so well looked after.
3: Yeah, and we try, you know, we try to do everything we can. We want our animals to be happy and healthy. If they're happy and healthy, it leads into the end product being a wonderful product. You can notice the difference. Mm. Stress makes such a big difference on quality of meat and you can tell that straight away. So we just try and make everything as happy as it can be within what we do,
2: it's just—I mean, I think it's phenomenal. I mean, th- you know, we've got the—I've well, got to be careful what I say now. Here is it the vegan tofu munching woke karate? <laughs> no. Anyway, you know, you know, you see these people in the middle of Norwich or other cities showing these horrific pictures of animals kept in disgraceful. That's not what a British farmer would do. No,
3: and, and also I think everyone should have their own beliefs, do what they want to do. If you want to be vegan, that's absolutely fine. And I think rather than try and scare people, they should try and promote benefits of being vegan to try and sell their story, you know. Mm. Like we do in agriculture, we try and say what we're doing, making the best of all the animals, what we're doing with our... You know uh, the animal welfare sides of things, and promote the positives rather than the negatives and um just be a little bit more respectful. there's room in the world for everyone.
2: oh my God, you are you're so good, aren't you? you really are you know we've now moved on to this this whole you know how animals are kept mm. and how they're reared and they're developed. You and I've discussed it in the past, but in terms of you know u k food security and in terms of how you you manage your animals i mean in the cereal industry we've I, we've been discussing the digital grain passport mm-hmm. massive hot topic there's a lot of push on it from millers maltsters, mm-hmm. and some in the industry saying oh yes digital grain passport." definitely have to do it it'll be wonderful you know I must it's well known our views on it in that it needs a lot more thought mm. we're still not clear on costs so they could be an astronomical but in terms of the livestock industry digital grain passport digital passports what's yeah. that
3: uh, it's I think it sounds very much like the livestock industry the really good bits in it which work the cattle system now in the UK is really good all the automated passports and tracking that the sheep industry's got a huge way to go in actual trying to get to the same standards as the cattle in terms of traceability and general cohesion of the livestock but the food security worries me all the regulations which keep being placed on the uk livestock industry i mean how many people are going to keep producing and keep jumping to all the hoops to do it you know it's, um... and yet and yet we happily import i know scientists, and I will be told totally different um, at the drop of a hat, but I can't see the carbon. Beef is supposed to be terrible for you, and with its carbon footprint, and particularly beef which is produced in Britain by the looks of it, because it's, apparently it's better to import Australian beef because it has a lower carbon footprint. Don't
2: you, worry, Liz Truss negotiated yeah, that
3: one. If you, you feed grain, you grow grain in Australia and maize, pump these cattle in big feedlots full of it, Kill them, freeze it, ship it over here. I mean, that's, surely there's. Am I being a little bit, you know, am I mad <laughs> that have oh, Aberdeen Angus out on the field there has not surely yeah. doesn't have quite such a high carbon footprint, but I don't have the figures, so I'm someone clever than I can tell me that.
2: I think common sense rings true here, David, in that yes, you're right, you know, these enormous feedlots wherever they are in Australia, mm. cattle are just pumped out, and you're right, slaughtered, mm. frozen, shipped over. Oh, we
3: can't use antibiotics so like any other country. We have to fill in three different medicine hubs just to prove that what our antibiotic usage, is which is very very minimal anyway yeah. um, ADHB have just introduced another medicine hub which our vets have to fill in and upload for us to prove the same thing that the red tractor system there's endless bureaucracy, bureaucracy which is costing a fortune you know someone's got to pay for all this at the end of the day and, and you know we, we're already paying it through red tractor we've now got a new vet attestation certificate needed for if you particularly if you export meat um you need now need a vet certificate which we don't export meat. And we've been told by the abattoirs this morning that they don't need this bit of paper because they don't export me. But yet we still have to have this piece of paper just in case something happens. And this
2: bit of paper's (laughs) been brought in by the government?
3: Yes, it's part of the government. It goes alongside a lot of the new changes to the SFI bits and pieces Um, particularly with the animal health and welfare review reforms on it so it's just the paperwork system is far above my (laughs) heads
2: okay so you know brexit and a reduction in red tape and paperwork that is definitely not true is it
3: even to the silly extent that we are coming up to we are fifth year into our countryside stewardship agreement where we're gotten really well with that. We've grown all the GS4 mix as we call them, which are the herb rich meadows, the loose, and the red clover. We have now reached a crossroads where we have been told that we it's not too late to renew your countryside stewardship agreement, although that's transferring into being an SFI agreement. And the SFI agreement isn't quite the same as the stewardship one. So we don't really know what we're going to be changing to next year. And also down to detail. Like we don't, we've got some wonderful parts of the farm which have really grown on well with the clover and the herb meadows, which we've got some which look like they could do with reseeding, but we don't know whether we've got to plough these up and start again or whether we can leave them in. We've asked DEFRA and we've been on webinars with DEFRA and asked DEFRA. DEFRA don't know. Slightly worrying. Yeah, well, I think a year ago we had to play them all up six months ago we could manage them so that it was okay if we could leave them if they were good no they don't know so we could really do a knowing before we commit to anything else what we have to do so watch this space my questions have still not been answered from death from eight weeks ago when i was promised an answer um but it's not forthcoming yet so we shall see okay
2: so you know we're being a little bit flippant about it but it's actually serious isn't it because here you are A livestock farmer who absolutely knows what he's doing, you know, you work your socks off to produce the highest quality meat easily that you can, and yet you are being blocked by, not blocked, but your job is made harder, let's say, by excess paperwork, government policy forcing extra things onto you and, and you not knowing what they mean it's almost a mirror image of what's happening in the combined or crop sector. Yeah.
3: We are obviously lucky that we've got uh, I mean the butchery side is basically a separate business to the farm, but we've always said that we wouldn't we'd only enter into government schemes if that was something we were going to do already and we wanted to grow different sorts of grazing and forage. So that worked perfectly for us and the animal health and welfare reviews of funding we do that anyway, so we can join that that part of the scheme anyway. But the new legislation is so complicated. I've had a look through pay and it's just so disjointed. I don't know whether the government want you to become paddock keepers or, or grass keepers or whether they want you to be productive farmers. I, I, I don't know. There's pathways for both, but I don't know. I think it should be a little bit more centred on individual businesses Because obviously if you're there to be a park keeper with the funding which is on offer, you need to on a massive scale for that to be your job. And so it doesn't apply viably to the small and middle-sized farms, which I think would actually deliver a better result for the government the public wants a nice countryside and all you know traditional farming which I believe whether I'm true or not I don't know but on the larger scale farms you're just going to get mass rewilding which is just going to it's not the same it's not the same as the green and pleasant land.
2: No we'll come on to that because that's another interesting point you've raised I think what we need to the takeaway for the minute is you know, sadly, government policy is confusing. Mm. I'm not clear, as you say, what they want. Oh, golly. The UK is reducing its food production. Mm. There's no two ways about it. You're seeing it in your sector. Yeah. We're seeing it in the cereal sector. We're relying on more imports yeah. of cheaper food. And I think history tells us that that's a poor example. You know, World War One, World War Two. Yeah. It was a disaster.
3: Yeah, and it's not just down to the pressures on farmers. I mean, farmers, the food industry needs a network. It needs, in our sector, it needs abattoirs to work for the food sector. We're down to one abattoir in Norfolk. Our next nearest abattoir is in Essex. Lie mate, because the regulations have really made it all. Have closed so many abattoirs. There's one more local, but they only specialise in pigs. So to do cattle and sheep you know we're so lucky to have one in norfolk but like if if anything happened to that one we'd be you know we probably wouldn't be able to continue because it wouldn't be viable for us to ship off on a small scale to anywhere which is in such a long way away
2: okay well i imagine the the abattoir rules and regulations elsewhere in the world are, are probably looser
3: mm. there is talk of they keep particularly in where there's probably more demand in ways, sort of like in your Livestock areas like Wales and the West Country—they yeah. they are talking about sort of mobile avatars or something coming up, which they might be able to work. But in this part of the country, which is primarily arable, you know, we are very restricted.
2: And you're, yeah, you're a bit of an outlier, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, David, I mean, Jacob Rees Mogg's comments about how wonderful American beef is.
3: Uh, I'm sure it is very nice, but uh, it just you know. What we, was the point of pro- that? We produce such great beef and meat in this country, so why not? We need to be supporting that. I mean, what what else do you do with all our lovely grass uplands and you know moorlands and that? I mean, that's prime situation for grazing livestock. You know, we need to be supporting the production in this country probably first, rather than. Looking at a cheaper alternatives. Yeah,
2: I mean, again, we this is something we've discussed, and Andrew's
3: takeaway from it has always been: well,
2: look, you know, you just have to all that meat from Australia has to be clearly labelled, and mm. you know, have
3: massive yellow stickers yeah. and to
2: say, look, this is imported, lower quality, lower
3: standard. I think that would be a way. Of, the public are not perfectly capable of making their own mind up. You know, it's a yes. There are people who need who are on a budget who need yes. to be looking at that. So, but you shouldn't be. You should be looking at ways. Of promoting agriculture in this country, because if you if people learnt how to use cheaper cuts of meat or something like that, you could have the government could provide education on that, which would make your budget go further rather than having to rely on prime cuts being cheap just through imports. Really,
2: yeah, you know that's important. Also, the government could make agricultural produce cheaper here. Mm by changing its regulations. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And I've always thought that the government, you know, one of the biggest things they could do is actually look at public procurement because the government and, I would say, the military and oh. hospitals and, and schools, you know, a lot of under which are publicly funded just have to go on a price-based tender which brings imported food, imported mm. meat. So why, why, if the government want to stimulate demand, why don't they, you know, they could actually use that, public procurement to help british agriculture by boosting sales and that would be you know bring more farmers more money and more throughput
2: crikey you've got my vote i don't know come on (laughs) david barnard mp mp yeah Yeah. i think
3: i think (laughs) i don't think i'd get many votes
2: (laughs) i think you'd get more than you thought david So, yeah, okay. The government can make farming, both livestock and combinable crop farming, simpler Mm. in this country, which will reduce the cost of it, and that can get passed on, and it means we can rely less on imports. What is happening, I, you know... Tell me if you disagree but there, there's a lot of legislation there's a lot of paperwork there's a lot of forms it adds costs and it adds time yeah time
3: the time is horrendous it, you know the and the duplication you know it's supposed to be if you're red tractor assured say which we are it's supposed to be able to make you know a lot of things easier in the sense that you only have to enter things once but we found that you know that's Totally not true. You know, it's the Red Tractor scheme. It's not joined up with government legislation. I I appreciate Red Tractor is an independent body. It's not. Anything to do with government. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 they but they are part you of. You didn't think there'd be some database where all this information would be available, but like I was saying earlier with the new vet rules for meat, you know, mm. it says that you're not, you know, if you're part of a tractor, you don't need to have these extra forms, but I just get the feeling you will because that people are going, we don't know, you know, how do we know this? How do we, we need our paperwork filled in? Everyone's got specific paperwork or specific forms. It's not all joined up. There needs to be some logical thinking I think logical thinking
2: yeah yeah. it is a bit depressing in that you know you've been in the industry all your working life and for you you can see how it can be made simple Mm. and more effective and everyone can win
3: yeah
2: but government are just disjointed and are distant from that. Yeah,
3: I think farmers need a little bit more responsibility, or is that, would that be the right word? That most farmers, or nearly all farmers I hope know what they're doing and are generally yeah. doing a good job. The industry's cleaned itself up over the years a lot with with all the you know a know lot of bad BSA, things have happened. Yeah. But this, I believe, nowadays. It's one of the more focused in the livestock industry in uh, England and the UK is a real dynamic industry. A lot of the farmers, they've approached changing their businesses and being, you know, lots of education gone into that. So they're, they're really sort of at the top of the game and want to be at the top of the game. You don't find many bad eggs in the basket. I think a lot of trust needs to be put more into the farmers to actually be able to, given an objective from the government, say that we want to achieve this and and your farm, you know how to look after your farm, you know how to look after your livestock, your land, get on with it and maybe look at some more performance-related schemes where, you know, if you deliver these goods, rather than just be paid for being a farmer or whatever or or paid for not doing this, that and the other. You deliver these goods, show the result and then you'll be rewarded. Surely that must be a simpler way for farmers.
2: More (laughs) sensible logic. I mean, (laughs) but the... the, uh,
3: I'll run out of it, see. No,
2: no you won't. But again, you know, there's another win because if the government simplifies everything, Mm. government becomes cheaper, doesn't it? You don't need as many civil servants. You don't need as much bureaucracy. No. And it's a win-win.
3: Yeah, how the grain industry even sort of with all your paperwork, how you even manage for that? <laughs> well, the,
2: the irony is that if you boil it down, that our two industries are fairly similar in the mm. changes we're seeing in the lack of government policy mm. and direction, and the fact that farmers actually aren't getting much support. And talking about you know changes in land and everything, I mean, we've started to see. A dramatic rise in rewilding of farms, solar farms being built. I mean, you know, just near you, what is there, a 600-acre farm has now gone into rewilding? Yeah,
3: I mean, that's been taken over by a a large company who specialise in delivering carbon-offsets projects, and that will be part of it. I think the plan is just used to be a big arable farm, being put down to higher level stewardship which real sort of basic starts to rewilding and i gather that this company's just going to let it go back to nature which i seems i don't know it's not doesn't feel right Uh, yeah i might be sort of old fuddy-duddy set my way. it doesn't just doesn't seem to sit right does it (laughs) well i think
2: the fact that as you say this was a productive arable
3: farm not that long ago no more than 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought this was a productive vegetable and an arable farm. And you know, that's just uh, I can totally see why the farm got transferred to or well, the farmer the far- sold it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And uh, but it's just how many more farms can we lose like that and still be able to feed the nation? Or well, we don't feed, we can't feed the nation anyway, can we? Okay. No. How low can the self sufficiency level go? That's the problem. It's, uh, we've seen that with crises in Russia and how food spikes just ridiculous, aren't they? That, you know, it doesn't take much to climate change.
2: Well, they, they come from nowhere, don't they? These external shocks to the system come out of the blue. And when they hit, they hit hard. And it's all well and good. Uh Rishi et al sitting back and going, Don't worry, food price inflation's coming down, you know, and all oh, and we can keep importing, yeah. but the minute there's a problem, all these exporters who are exporting, well, they'll just abandon us, and they'll yeah. go right, we need to protect our own, yeah." The UK will have to, and then all of a sudden we'll be sitting here looking at fields of solar panels and wildflowers and going, "Crikey, you can't well, eat!" We've
3: got some electric, but we can't. We haven't got anything to eat. Yeah. <laughs> we've noticed that. Other countries do that. Like you say, other countries look after themselves, and we'll soon go. Well, we're not. You know, we're going to close our borders now and, and keep our feed stocks. But you know, I you've seen the Ukraine. What happened to livestock feed prices when grain exports? Was stopped you know yeah. our price of feed went up probably 100 pounds a ton in a week i think which right. that is a big change thankfully it has come down a bit now but you know it's just uh, we've got no control over grain prices and that's it's just you know we can't certainly if it, if they kept going to be as such a volatile as that you know we couldn't you can't, can't okay we can't change yeah. our prices to reflect 100 pounds a ton feed change overnight so, uh,
2: yeah and in the meantime as, as 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 I've said you know you have the government sitting in the background going don't worry, we'll just keep importing it. And I guess the supermarkets don't help, do they? No,
3: I mean, they. it's just the margins for, I guess, if you supply sheep. I hear the problems of people who supply vegetables to supermarkets. And we used to hire a farm for sheep grazing, which produced vegetables for a high street supermarket. And they would have contracts and the supermarkets would then just say, we don't want it. So they were left with hundreds and maybe thousands of acres of carrots, which a major supermarket just said, I don't want that anymore. And they said, well, we've got a contract. And they said, well, what are you going to do about it? We still don't want it. So they just get plowed in. It's just sort of, you know, you just think, no, it's just criminal, criminal isn't Criminal, really. Isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, ooh, golly, is there a day of reckoning for the power of the supermarkets? Probably not. If they keep delivering value to yeah, the consumer, yeah. which is... Where the government has basically said to the supermarkets, you have to deliver value. Well, yeah, we'll do that, we'll do yeah. that. But, you know, I think what the government are forgetting is, and we're going to say it again, they could help the UK farmer operate more cheaply by reducing bureaucracy. Yes,
3: yeah, yeah, definitely. And we've said that all along, haven't we? That it's yeah. just going to, you know, if we could look, have a crystal ball and, and, and drop the red tape and all the bureaucracy, then. It would make the UK farming industry just that much easier. Wouldn't it?
2: Okay, right. Look, the future, David. Right. I mean, for you and your business, how do you see it ten years time? Ooh. Don't get too depressed.
3: <laughs> Hopefully, still doing what we're doing. Need to keep engaging with the younger consumers because obviously, we our main customers are those early retired people with high disposable income who want to buy high value um, high quality high value products and we need to try and keep engaging with the younger people to say that you know you need to still know where your food comes from still buy local and it can be affordable and so we that's that's part of our we need to look at that as a business of how we can deliver that to, to that and but we are in the hands of the market. So, you know, you never know never know where we'll be. We'll be somewhere. We'll be back to Reading putting our what? lecturers... <laughs> sort of lecturing on oh, what God. not to do. Well, you'd be <laughs> an exceptional... drinking. You'd be an exceptional...
2: <laughs> you'd be an exceptional lecturer. I'd be still in the Student uh, Union bar, David. Uh, yeah,
3: but you'd be the one everyone likes.
1: You oh, know? God.
2: <laughs> I mean, OK, look, you know, you and I are... Young, middle-aged men who've spent all of our life in agriculture, we know our subjects reasonably well. And I just think this last, I guess it's been building, but the last five years definitely seems a lot more difficult mm. for UK agriculture, yeah. livestock and cereals.
3: Yeah, and it's not just it's it's not just the government bureaucracy or the food crisis like we said about the, the grain and things it's other factors interest rates going up you know there's a lot of a lot of borrowing in the farming industry and you know, interest rates are going to affect that and tax changes and that so it, the farmers under so many pressures from so many different areas that it's just it's tough i would think to to keep going and and keep sort of flying the flag so You know, hopefully there'll be some sort of help on the horizon, shall we say, to do that, and some optimism. We want some optimism, don't we? We do.
2: We need optimism, and you know, we've covered a lot. And I thank you for your time. I know normally you like to see me in a restaurant or a pub. Well, it's nice to have you out here. I said,
3: (laughs) I know you used to beer. We've only got sausage rolls today. Well, I'm looking. (laughs) I tell you what, I'm looking
2: forward to my sausage roll. But with that, David, I mean, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. Absolutely brilliant and you know maybe we'll do another one in, in come and see us again Yeah, we'll do again. Come
3: to, I'll come to you in grey oh, there we go get the boy out of Attleborough
2: yeah, yeah I need my passport
3: to come that far <laughs> alright
2: thank you for that
0: thanks for listening make sure you subscribe to get updates on new episodes and when they are released and follow us on Twitter and Instagram We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.